0: Welcome to EANCAST, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology.
1: Hello and welcome to another podcast about palliative care. I'm David Oliver. I'm an honorary professor at the University of Kent and a member of the management group of the specialty panel in palliative care. And we're, today we'd like to talk about Parkinson's disease. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Ed Richfield, who is a consultant in care of the elderly in Bristol and has had a lot of experience in the care of people with Parkinson's disease. Welcome.
2: Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. What
1: well, we'd like to talk about how the role of palliative care is for Parkinson's disease. What do you feel is the role of palliative care? for people with Parkinson's disease and their families.
2: Thanks. Yeah, it's gosh, it's very wide-reaching potentially, isn't it? Um, It's changed a lot in the last few years, and so I suppose there's a question of what the role is currently and how that's operationalised in different settings and um, what the role could be, because I suspect that in most areas we are not utilizing it yet to its full potential and that is I think partly because our understanding has changed and levels of acceptance have changed both within the profession and also within the population generally so we'll still find pockets where people are using rather outdated definitions of palliative care and still thinking of it as being um, around just dying and as we move away from that then we're increasingly utilising palliative care and palliative care approaches to its full sort of potential and that's where we need to head i think for this population so and i think there are specific aspects um you know for parkinson's disease even with the very limited approach you know even if one was to focus on 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 death and dying and and the end of life there are aspects of care for people with parkinson's disease which require specific thought You know, how might one manage um, stiffness at the end of life? Are we sure that we're uh, recognising dying appropriately and not, particularly in a hospital setting, not over-diagnosing dying when people actually are under-treated or have intercurrent illness? How do we manage Parkinson's medications at home? How do we help colleagues in a hospice um, to... Uh, incorporates Parkinson's disease and its medications into their management so that people get equal access so even if we took a very limited definition of palliative care I think there are PD specific issues to address but I'm imagine I don't have to convince you that taking a wider approach potentially opens up a much greater scope of work and potential and actually if we look at some of the some of the research, you know, um there's evidence from the states accepting that their population, their healthcare system has particular differences to Europe, but that actually people with Parkinson's disease are very varied in their um willingness to or desire to engage with palliative care, which means that, you know, twenty-five percent of people almost were wanting to discuss end of life issues and advanced care planning right from those early early um consultations. So actually, if we take a whole disease approach, then there are roles right from the beginning. There are roles in helping people to assimilate information, helping people to cope with their disease, because um, there are very clear differences in the qualitative literature in the way that people use information to help them cope with their disease. Some people being information gatherers and that being a very important coping strategy. There are roles around uh, helping people come to terms with the fact of diagnosis and what that means for them and the losses along the journey and I'm sure everyone who cares for people with Parkinson's disease would recognize that that life course is often punctuated by periods of loss, whether that be social or physical or or, or, or spiritual or psychological and um and of course, caregiver support, et cetera sorry i'm <laughs> that's a very long answer but um so I think that wider view really gives us a much greater potential um, for palliative care to have benefit Um, it also opens up a wider conversation about how we meet those needs and how that expands beyond um, the definition of of who gives who who does palliative care because by definition you're then taking a whole disease um, approach
1: Thank you very much. I mean, do you see the neurologist or the elderly care physician or the general physician as providing a lot of this palliative care, looking at people from their physical, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects? Should we all be involved in providing palliative care throughout the disease process? Thank you. Yes. I think is the is the quick answer, isn't
2: it? Do I ever give quick answers? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, so, so I think it's inevitable, isn't it? Because it isn't feasible to take a a whole disease approach and uh, and ask that to be delivered by specialist palliative care. It, it just it just can't happen. It isn't possible. Never mind the fact that it isn't desirable, because there are significant advantages to um, some of these things being delivered by the usual care team because you have that longevity of um, relationship with the patient as a neurologist or or, or, um, nurse specialist or geriatrician looking after people with Parkinson's disease you have uh, a high level of specialist knowledge about the medications and the disease itself which you can't necessarily transplant into your palliative care colleagues in the same way that they can't transplant their expertise into us so I think it's inevitable that taking that wider approach requires um, everybody to, to play their part. The really interesting question, I think, is how you what that means in practice and um, the balance of different types of care for different people, how that changes over time as teams learn from each other. And I think we're increasingly moving towards an understanding of that. There are some principles to guide us. But actually often that will look, I think, different locally, maybe even you know, even within the same geographic region. You know, even I'm working in Bristol and colleagues are working in, for example, Bath, which is 30 miles down the road, and you may I think you may find that there are differences in the way that has to be operationalised because it depends on the skills of the team, the makeup of the team, the resources that are available. So I think we start from the principles of what we're trying to deliver. And then there's quite a detailed conversation, potentially, about who can do what, whose skills are suited to this. How do we create a system that
1: helps us to to deliver those um, aspects of care? Thank you. Certainly during these podcasts, we've talked of the collaboration between neurology and neurology services and specialist palliative care services and that neurologists can provide general palliative care and that approach to patients, listening to them, talking with them, working on their symptoms, helping with advanced care planning and preparing for end of life, perhaps in collaboration with specialist palliative care. Are there particular areas during the disease progression, where I think, where we should all be aware of potential needs, whether they're symptoms or psychological or caregiver needs are there particular areas that we all ought to be aware of Mm -hmm. thank you um
2: yeah i think that's a really interesting question and i think that our understanding of this will grow i think we can we can we probably can even now map out some time points so we know that um diagnosis is a very challenging period um people with parkinson's have often had a long lag period living with symptoms before they're recognized even living with motor symptoms never mind the fact that we know the pre-motor symptoms of course may have been there for many years so i think the the diagnosis itself actually is a time of which requires considerable care based on people's expectation of that diagnostic consultation what what were they going into the room thinking about some people will have almost decided themselves they've got Parkinson's disease and their response to that diagnosis would be very different to someone who's going in there with no idea of um, what's going to happen in the consultation. We know that, um, for example, the uh, non-motor features of Parkinson's are very burdensome for people, so having a consideration to those would be very important. We know that the onset of Holen-Yar stage 3 with axial um, instability is associated with a step change in quality of life and inke- increased caregiver needs so we could start to build up this this pattern and um, there's some evidence to guide us in terms of times when tra- disease trajectory might start to to uh, be um uh, more progressive you know progressive towards towards the more complex and and um and eventually palliative phase of the disease that's Using a very medical model, <laughs> but I think you know, for our medical brains, that, that that's one way of looking at it. I think there's a really key question about how we respond to the information coming out of uh, the, the cohort studies that have been running for some time now, and our increased understanding that that gives us prognostically. People will be familiar with the existence of at least two that I know of models for um, trying to predict outcome in parkinson's disease um used in a research context but you know increasingly we have an idea of people who have a worse prognosis and for me that creates a potential big power imbalance across the consultation desk if people still use those whereby i may be sitting in clinic and recognize a um, cluster of symptoms and signs and think Gosh. And um, the question, I think, the challenge to myself is how do I respond to that and am I open um, to understanding the patient's needs around information and around um, planning for the future? So I think as we are understanding of um, prognostic information changes, we'll increasingly be less able to hide behind this um, sort of pluralistic approach of, oh, no one knows what, what the future holds, the varied, actually. increasingly we will do and and then actually I'm sorry for the long answer again David I think there's an even more interesting patient-centered approach which is about understanding the important patient milestones along the journey it can sound slightly trite to think about those um, in a generalized way because obviously people are individuals so I think we can have some framework in our head in terms of uh, losses you know what are the losses that are occurring along the way I think of people who are talking about moving house because they think they might need a bungalow, so they're leaving the house they've been in for many years or losing their job or giving up driving. I think those are true. They are important points for people. Um, And and then actually we go even a level deeper to that. And having a longevity of relationship with a patient, I think hopefully allows us to know them well enough that actually we start to recognise what's important to them specifically and the losses for them along the way. I couldn't write my Christmas cards this year, which was really important to me because that's how I keep in touch with my long lost friends. And it's not to say that each of those points necessarily needs a specific you know, palliative intervention, but to say that there, are t- there may well be, I think, times along that life course where someone's openness to considering the future and openness to palliative intervention is higher and their potential for palliative need is higher. And so that should challenge us as clinicians to say, have I thought about it? Have I been open to it? Maybe have I applied a screening tool, if that's what you want to do? I don't think many people are doing that yet, but there's, there's potential for that. But mostly, have I been listening properly? Have I heard the upward inflection in the voice? And have I responded appropriately? Because I think we'll all have been in situations where... We get a hint of that. And again, that power dynamic, the way that, you know, we can guide, guide the conversation. And did I take the opportunity to guide the conversation in the area that was going to take me an extra 10 minutes? Um, was I, I think that's one that, of the I think those are. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry. Do you think, <laughs> you mentioned screening tools. Do you think there is going to be an increasing role for people... Perhaps before a clinic appointment on a regular basis, completing a, a very basic assessment, you know, patient response, so that you are aware of what may be becoming issues to people. Potentially. I think um,
2: there's so many tools, aren't there, in Parkinson's disease, and so few of them, I think, that are used in practice. I mean, in our locality, we do, uh, for example, the non motor symptom questionnaire pre clinic. And whilst that's not a palliative care tool, it, it'll give you an idea about the important um, symptoms for people, which is pretty important and and clearly um, uh, linked to palliative care need because one could go one step beyond that. You know, I've got really bad bladder urgency. Okay, well, what does that mean in terms of other things? Um, so I think that's feasible. There are some tools which are clinician-facing rather than patient-facing. And I think we can have some idea about... Um, how we could utilise tools. So I think in a in a general PD consultation or a general neurology clinic, something which is rapidly completed by the clinician to say I'm worried about, to prompt them to think I'm worried about this is probably feasible. Something that involves asking patients a, a series of questions I think probably isn't unless we have very different structures. So it may be that those tools are better placed as the next step once we've identified and met need to say, actually, can we quantify it and can we measure response
1: to intervention? And how much do you think we, how, with a park, particularly an elderly person with Parkinson's disease, we need to be looking at the wider social aspect for the caregivers? How do we support the caregivers as part of the palliative care we provide? That's an uh, yeah interesting question, and I suppose it'll depend a lot
2: on um, the context in which we're practicing medicine in the UK at the moment. You know, accessing care is very difficult, Uh, and so I would say I'm thinking back to my clinic last week. You know, we're often talking to people about planning for a bad day and building in enough resilience so that when that intercurrent illness comes along, there's some resilience there for caregivers um because we don't have currently a system which can respond quickly enough to times of enhanced need. So there's that pragmatic aspect. How do we help relieve some of the um burden's a loaded word, isn't it? Some of the um implications of being a caregiver. Um and that often that's so that might be very physical tasks. You know, how do we get people to help with getting your relative washed and dressed and and then the psychological aspects of that in terms of how do we make care acceptable how do we make it something that isn't stigmatized how do we make it something that people feel comfortable having so they're very very practical things and that might include for example respite care uh, which in the uk would have two different forms so you could have respite for a period of time where um, the person with parkinson's perhaps goes to a a care facility for a short period a couple of weeks while the carer goes away in my experience that's often not acceptable to people and actually doesn't work well uh, because changing environment obviously is very tricky but you could also divide that time up into a few hours per week which gives um, the caregiver some relief to go and do other things that can be really helpful and then the sort of psychological and aspects of caring in terms of caregiver support groups. Different people have different attitudes to those as to whether they're acceptable to them or not. Um, and then the big thing that we've found has been again this assimilation of loss and um, and and problems around anticipated grief and anticipated loss um, for caregivers. So we've been. We've had a link with our palliative care team uh, in Bristol for PD for a few years. And um, we we started off thinking that we'd be asking them lots of, you know, please, can you help us do an advanced care plan? But actually, we do that in the vast majority of cases. And um, actually, the questions that we ask from a caregiver perspective are often around um, support pre and post grief, uh, pre and post bereavement. And this whole guilty thing about, you know, sense you can't see air quotes they come across well do they sense you know, someone going to a care home you know I, I sent him to a care home and that the, the guilt that comes with that so it's much more actually about that psychological support um is what
1: we've been we've been referring for caregivers and is that particularly when people have cog the, the person with Parkinson's may have cognitive change is that a, a an area that would be particularly difficult for the person with Parkinson's, but also for their carers, whether that's family carers or carers within a residential si- situation.
2: Uh, yes, yeah. So it's clearly a time of increased need, isn't it? We know that caregiver burdens quite well associated with um with 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 uh, cognitive impairment, and um all the implications of that. Right, so sleep and and um, being up in the night and. Washing bedclothes that are soiled, and um, as well, and and as well as that sort of loss of previous relationships and grieving for you know the person that you had and the relationship that you had, um, yes, yeah, so definitely, definitely. I suppose you might, one might conceptualise it as someone losing their their own support structure in terms of losing their partner at the same time as having this high level of of, of um, practical responsibility. I don't know how specific it is to the UK, but this, the socially still for many older people in particular, the idea of going to a care home is hugely stigmatized and um, people fight and fight and fight to try and keep someone at home. I don't mean fighting us, but fighting, you know, the disease and the process and the situation and this, um, it's hugely, hugely burdensome for people. This this responsibility to try and keep someone out of a care home at all costs because that's been their longest held desire, and um, I have huge respect for them trying to do it, and we try and support them. But I, I do wonder at, um, some of that is heavily to do with social
1: stigma. So I don't know how well that translates into other European cultures. But... No, thank you for that. I think there's a, it's, it's so complex, isn't it, of how carers. Cope with their caregiving and how they cope with the person who is is deteriorating. And finally, if you were going to give one piece of advice on palliative care to a neurologist caring for people with Parkinson's disease, what would you suggest? What's one or t- you could have two if you want, but a couple of pieces of advice. Thanks. Can I say neurologist or geriatrician, David, just to make it better? Either. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um so um I think the biggest thing is probably structure, isn't it? I think is structuring your service, which doesn't just mean your clinic, but the the wider service in a way that allows people to ask the question, that allows people to safely say what's happening here without thinking, Oh heck, my clinic's gonna be two hours late and this is awful and I haven't got the skills to deal with the fallout. Um so because I think without that we can't change, certainly we can't change to that wider whole disease model we were talking about because people, nobody wants to Nobody wants to miss things. Nobody wants to be the doctor that doesn't pick up on something or the nurse that doesn't pick up on something. So actually we need a structure that says, I understand my own skill set. Maybe I'm interested in trying to expand my skill set so I can do more of this, great. But I understand my own skill set. I understand the skill sets of the other people around me and i have a structure in which it's safe to ask this question and um just to operationalize that slightly you know we did this when i was working in leeds as a new consultant was to have um we recognized that we had very you know like regular length appointments but actually that meant it was very difficult to try and address some of these issues so we set up a clinic uh, run by a geriatrician to me where we had deliberately had longer appointments and so the aim was that someone could ask the question acknowledge the answer and say right we may not have time to deal with that today but we're going to bring you back to this other setting where we will deal with it and I think that's that can be sufficient to um, make it safe to ask the question um, and then the second thing I think would be about um, having a, f- a framework of understanding of what palliative care is in for PD and how it can can help and that sounds like a slightly sort of funny answer but it's some of the things we talked about having that Those points along the disease journey where I'm going to challenge myself to make sure I've been open and maybe, you know, gently ask the question.
1: Thank you. And I think the other thing I've heard you as we've been talking is collaboration with specialist palliative care providers, having the opportunity. And I always say if neurologists don't know what how to make that contact, you know, put a cup of coffee and a biscuit and a chance to meet up with people and talk about some of the issues and and see if we can build up that collaboration between neurology and elderly care and and palliative, specialist palliative care for the benefit of patients and families
2: absolutely i'm sorry i didn't mention that. so in the structure when i was talking about the structure i guess i was focusing on that side of the divide but absolutely um you you have to have access to the specialist so that when you uncover a problem that you need help with help is there again that's about enabling someone to ask the question safely um, what we can't do is ask palliative care to do all of it so making sure that we that we can safely ask for their help is vital
1: yeah thank you very much indeed i hope that's given everyone a a, a wider view of palliative care in parkinson's disease there is a webinar coming up from the AN in the next week so look out for that if you're not able to attend the webinar it will be available on the website and certainly in the an especially panel palliative care area there is further information and do contact us for further information and think about palliative care when you're looking after someone with a neurological disease thank you very much indeed for everyone for listening and thank you to ed for giving us such a, a comprehensive overview of palliative care. Thank you. Thanks, David.
0: This has been EANcast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org slash membership. That's ean.org membership. Thanks for listening. ENCAST Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.